Amen. It's always fun to gather together on a special occasion like tonight. Uh, Christmas Eve services are some of my most exciting services to be a part of and to be able to, to sing, to be able to sing these carols and to look at scripture that is so profound. And when you really stop and consider what happened there that night and just the impact that it would have throughout the course of humanity. Uh, so many prophets of old had spoken about this specific event. They had foretold that Christ would be born, that he'd be born in Bethlehem, and just the context and the setting upon which he would be found, and to see it all come to fruition, to see prophecy fulfilled, to be able to look back nearly 2,000 years into the past and to see that this is indeed how God brought his only begotten son to the world is truly amazing to think about uh, because as we consider all that it means to us tonight, uh, there's, there's so much that God is trying to tell us through what is quickly recorded for us in about seven verses. Here in Luke chapter 2, we're going to look at just verses 1 through 7 here tonight as we look at Christ's humble birth, how humble it was, what it meant to all of us. So if you would, turn with me in your Bibles tonight to Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2. And we'll quickly look at the first seven verses as we look at Christ's humble birth. The historical record of the greatest birth in history is summarized in seven verses. The birth of Christ was foretold by many prophets of old. It was what every Old Testament believer was looking forward to, hoping that maybe it would happen in their day. The coming Messiah was what gave every single Old Testament saint hope as they trusted in God and his plan to bring ultimate redemption for mankind. Jesus said of Abraham in John chapter 8 and verse 56 that Abraham, he said, rejoiced to see his day. There was so much excitement looking ahead to God joining humanity in the flesh through the person of Jesus Christ because men knew their need for salvation and that it would only be possible through this future Messiah. When he was going to come, no one really knew. But they knew that God had said it was going to happen and so they were with joy looking ahead anxiously for the day that the Savior of the world would join humanity. He was coming to complete the hope. He was coming to complete the joy of all those of old who had trusted in God, who had trusted in the promise of God to bring deliverance and salvation from sin. Christ was coming to bring fulfillment to over 350 prophecies. Christ was coming to show the world that God was a personal God, that he was intimately involved in all the affairs of men and desired to have a personal relationship with everyone. Christ was coming to show that the world... Uh, show the world that God wasn't leaving man on his own. That man wouldn't be left trying to figure out how to get to heaven on his, own, on his own power and through his own strength. That man wouldn't be left hopeless and helpless. That man wouldn't be cold and even lost completely in desperation. Christ was joining humanity to change the course of human history forever. He came to offer everlasting joy to all those who come to faith in him. Everything the Bible hinges upon is Jesus Christ. Without him, we have nothing. We have nothing but maybe a collection of interesting and thought-provoking stories. With him, we have God's revelation to mankind. With him, we have God's plan of redemption, the means by which every single one of us can experience eternal life in heaven. An event so crucial, an event so pivotal for the entire race of mankind, and yet the Bible record of it is so clear so simple so straightforward 
Why complicate what God has already made simple? God made salvation as simple as believing on the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. There's no dancing around hoops. There's no cumulative body of work that you have to compile over an entire lifetime in order to throw it before God and say, is this enough? He's made it so simple as just believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. There's nothing else added to your faith that brings your salvation or that makes your salvation full and complete. Just a simple faith that Jesus Christ died for your sins, that he was buried in the tomb, and on the third day rose from the grave, giving everlasting life for all those who place their faith and trust in him. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out God's plan of salvation. You just need to understand that you're a sinner who's in need of a savior and that no work of your own will ever be good enough to earn your salvation. You need to understand that the only way to heaven is through faith in Jesus Christ alone, who has done all the work necessary for your salvation to be full and to be complete. And when you believe in Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us that you're eternally secure, you're eternally saved. He is the one that keeps you saved. He is the one that keeps you forever and maintains it to the end. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that God has made it so simple. Praise the Lord that he has made it simple enough that a four-year-old can understand it. Praise the Lord that he allowed me as a four-year-old to understand this very simple message of the gospel, everything that Jesus Christ has done for me personally and through faith in him. Praise the Lord that as four years old, I was saved. An event so grand that it changed the fabric of human history and that the Bible contains the entire message in just seven verses. The one whom the entire Bible is written about. And yet the story of him entering humanity is summarized in only seven verses. With all the prophecies looking forward to the birth of Christ. One would have thought there would have been an entire book here in the Bible devoted to just his arrival. Every scripturally informed Jewish person knew that the Messiah would one day join humanity. They even knew that he would be of the royal line of David. They even knew where he, would be, where he was to be born. The minor prophet Micah had prophesied hundreds of years before Christ's birth. He said in Micah 5.2, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem. But Mary and Joseph were living in Nazareth roughly 70 miles to the north of Bethlehem. Even though Luke 2 doesn't quite quote Micah 5 to, it does show us how God providentially arranged for Joseph and Mary to be in Bethlehem when Jesus Christ was born. It's almost as if everything happened by chance. Right? What are the chances that Caesar Augustus sends out a decree that all the world would be taxed. That everyone needs to go to their hometown, to their homeland, register to where they can be taxed. What are the chances that it would all happen at the precise time that Jesus was to be born? We're so lucky that it happened this way, aren't we? Otherwise, God's word would never have come true. Are we lucky, though? Or is it possible? Is it possible that God was working through various individuals to accomplish exactly what he set out to accomplish at exactly the time he meant it all to be accomplished. If everything had happened normally, Jesus would have been born in Nazareth. But God worked in so many incredible ways behind the scenes to ensure that his only begotten son joined humanity in complete fulfillment of prophecy. Listen to the account here in Luke chapter 2 and verses 1 through 7. And it came to pass in those days 
that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. I want you to notice first the world setting at Christ's birth. The world setting at Christ's birth. The Bible tells us here about Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was a prominent emperor during the time that Rome occupied Israel. He was really completely oblivious to what God was doing here at this time. But God was going to use him to accomplish something so great when he sent out this decree that the world should be taxed. Caesar Augustus didn't send this out knowing that it was going to force Joseph and Mary up in Galilee to come down to Bethlehem. He had no clue about Joseph and Mary. But scripture would be fulfilled when Jesus was born in Bethlehem nonetheless. This man was completely oblivious to what the prophet Micah had foretold in Micah 5.2 that Bethlehem was going to be significant about anything. God used a pagan emperor to accomplish his purposes. The Jews were under Roman occupation in these days. And just like any people group who are under the occupation, under the authority of any other country, they hated it. They hated it with every fiber of their being. They wanted to be free. They wanted to be just completely out from under the hand and thumb of Rome. But they were forced this way. They had no love for the Romans, but they couldn't do anything about removing them from their power. Caesar Augustus had actually been a great emperor for Rome. As you look back historically, she had ushered in a great time of peace, which really allowed for construction of an incredible road system throughout Europe. And this great road system allowed for transportation really in every direction. And it worked really to solidify Roman control during these days. They could now easily travel all around this vast empire, but God was providentially working through this as well. Because God used this ingenuity rapidly to spread the gospel. God was using all of these outside events really to pave the way for the birth of his only begotten son. The apostle Paul wrote in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, he says, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Every little detail wasn't happening by chance. It wasn't coincidence. There is no chance and coincidence in the, in the book, in the Bible, in God's view. Everything happens according to his perfect plan. Every little detail was falling into perfect place for Jesus Christ to be in Bethlehem at the time of his birth. And this decree that went forth was a, a common governmental action of the day. Rome being the world power at the time, they had the authority to call all people under control of the Roman Empire to be registered for a tax. Such registrations were typically done really for two reasons. First, to determine who's eligible for any sort of, any sort of military service. And then second, to assess taxes, which is the case that we see people calling for the registration here in Luke chapter 2. In a taxation census, the people needed to return to their homeland, where their family, where their ancestors originated. 
The people needed to register their names. They needed to register their occupation. They needed to register their property holdings and all their family members to, that was, to the ruling power, which was Rome. Much like what we do today for the IRS. As you can imagine, the Jews hated this Roman taxation. The Jews already felt that Rome had no business occupying Israel in the first place, so they were certainly not pleased to then be forced to pay these taxes to these unwanted guests. Their hatred of the Roman tax system, it really came out against their own countrymen, Jewish people, who were used to collect taxes for Rome. Tax collectors were not notorious for being well-liked. Sentiment hasn't changed 2,000 years later. Tax collectors weren't appreciated then either. The Jews looked upon this taxation as an intrusion, really, of a pagan nation into their own personal private lives. Little did they realize that God was using all of this to bring to pass something that would forever change the course of human history. Hundreds of years prior to this decree of Caesar Augustus, God sent forth another decree by another pagan king, this time by the name of Cyrus. He allowed the Jews to return to their homeland and rebuild Jerusalem. God was really doing the same thing here in Luke chapter 2. He was paving the way for his son to be born in Bethlehem. Now, interestingly enough, history tells us that even though Caesar Augustus made this initial decree for all the world to be taxed, due to a number of delays and some difficulties that came up, this decree wouldn't be fully carried out until several years after it was made. Nonetheless, Joseph and Mary needed to travel from Galilee up in the north down to Judea in the south where Bethlehem was because this is where both Joseph and Mary were originally from. They traveled and they had to report, they had to register. Now, Roman citizens typically registered in their own current place of residence. But according to Jewish custom, Jews had to go back to their hometown. Verse 4 tells us why they had to leave Nazareth. Notice what it says in verse number 4 of Luke chapter 2. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. When God had first led the Israelites into the promised land, he divided the land according to tribe. The, the bigger tribes had a, a larger allotment of land, but each individual tribe, other than the tribe of the Levites, were given their own allotment of land once they arrived into the promised land. Occasionally, the land would change hands. But every 50 years, God had instituted that all the various lands that maybe they'd exchange hands from here and there would all revert back to the original owners every 50 years. So genealogies were incredibly important in Jewish custom. The Jews kept a very, very detailed record of their ancestry and all their family history. This way, every person would be able to easily identify his father's home and know where they needed to return in times of official obligation, like a taxation or a census, like we're seeing here in Luke chapter 2. So Joseph, being of the house and lineage of David, knew he was originally from Bethlehem. So him and Mary made the journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. They thought this was a business trip. Little did they know God was orchestrating these events to fulfill his word. But notice second, the national setting at Christ's birth. The national setting at Christ's birth. In the span of one verse, one verse, we read about the journey that Joseph and Mary made to Bethlehem. Notice again what it says in verse number four. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Just like that, they made the journey. One verse. We're given no details as to what that journey was like. 
where they stopped to rest on the way, how long it took them to make the journey, the different sites they may have passed by as they've traveled. There were so many historically significant places that they could have passed through. Now, if you allow me, I'd like to speculate for a moment where they could have passed through on their way from Nazareth in the north down to Bethlehem in the south. Once they left Nazareth, they most likely could have passed through Shiloh. And Shiloh is significant because this is the town, this is the place where Hannah prayed and asked God for a son. Next, they would have come upon Gilgal, where Samuel sat and judged Israel. Their journey would have next brought them through Bethel, which has tremendous significance if your name is Abraham or Jacob. From Bethel, it's possible that they climbed to Gibeon, where Solomon worshipped God. And then on to Mizpah, where Samuel set up a memorial stone called Ebenezer. Eventually, they would have arrived to Jerusalem. And then past Mount Moriah, and a few more miles later, they would have finally arrived at Bethlehem. And Luke tells us this way. And Joseph also went out from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. That's it. That's all we get as far as their journey is concerned. King David was born in Bethlehem. And since both Joseph and Mary were both from the lineage of David, they were both returning to the place of their homeland as they prepared to register for this taxation. Now, over the years, some have wondered if Mary had to make this journey, that she needed to be concluded as part of this registration and part of this taxation, if it was necessary for her to report to Bethlehem also for this tax. Now, there's nothing in the Bible that says she had to be present to, to sign any official document of any sort, or that she had to verify her ancestry in any sort of way. But as we consider what she was presently experiencing, it makes complete sense for her to travel with Joseph. Mary was in a very difficult position socially. She was a spouse to Joseph, the Bible says, but she had never been with him intimately, yet she's also pregnant. Trying to explain her situation to everyone around her would have been hard enough without people thinking that she's lying. Many probably have endured much scorn and ridicule. Uh, Mary would have endured much scorn and ridicule, ridicule had she stayed behind in Nazareth and let Joseph make the journey by himself to, to Bethlehem. And on top of that, Joseph, as Matthew tells us, being the just man that he was, I'm sure, was not willing to leave Mary back home to deal with all of this on her own, not to mention the fact that she was so far along in her pregnancy. Honestly, from their perspective, this trip couldn't have come at a better time. They were probably relieved to just get away from everyone there in Nazareth for some time, at least until Jesus was born. World and national conditions led to Joseph and Mary traveling from, from Nazareth in the north to Bethlehem in the south. But more important than that, they had to travel to Bethlehem to fulfill the words of the prophet Micah. There's no denying that God had established through the prophet Micah that his only begotten son, the one whose goings forth had been from of old, from everlasting, would be born there in Bethlehem. Every Jewish person knew that this, was this, that this verse, Micah 5.2, was clearly speaking of the Messiah. Who else has, has, has had goings forth from old, from everlasting. No one has lived from everlasting. They knew this, and now that God had revealed to Joseph and Mary that this child that was to be born of her was indeed the Son of God, Joseph knew that God would have to do something to get them down to Bethlehem in order to fulfill his word, which he had spoken by the prophet Micah. So he's probably thinking in the back of his mind, it makes complete sense that this decree has gone out. Lord, you're true to your word. 
I was expecting this all along. Notice third, the personal aspect of Christ's birth. Notice what it says in verse number six. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. While they were there, the Bible says. And we know that Joseph and Mary were in Bethlehem, but we don't know specifically where in Bethlehem they were or even how long they had been there before the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. When we get to verse number seven, we get a few more details as to maybe where they were, a specific location. It says, And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. So we get a few more details, but even there, it's pretty vague. It's amazing, though, how our imaginations fill in these details with such few words describing where they were when he was born. We have such vivid and descriptive nativity scenes today, all based on what we see here in verse number seven. And there's not much here in verse number seven. There's nothing about animals. There's nothing about what this setting looked like. We have a nativity scene right here. I'm sure you've seen maybe hundreds of different depictions of what the nativity may have looked like. And all of it are taken off of what it says here in verse number seven, which is very few little details. But we have this idea that Joseph and Mary encountered some mean innkeeper after mean innkeeper as they searched back and forth, high and low, far and wide, for some decent accommodations. And it's all based on the few words from this verse because there was no room for them in the end. Whoever this poor innkeeper is that gets the bad rap, I feel so bad for him. But regardless of what specifically happened from the little information that we're given, we know that Joseph and Mary were basically spending their time in Bethlehem like they were homeless. And this doesn't mean that they didn't have any sort of shelter or that they were left out completely in the cold, but they didn't really have comfortable accommodations. Bethlehem would have been crowded with all sorts of people coming into town because of this decree. Everyone who's from Bethlehem is now coming back. And all the other available rooms would have been taken. As a result, Joseph and Mary were relegated to a shelter where most likely animals would have been kept. Now, we don't know how long they would have spent there, if they registered before Christ was born or after he was born, but we do know that they stayed in Bethlehem until after Jesus was born. Now, with all the details now perfectly arranged, God has worked everything out there. There in Bethlehem, the time had come for God's only begotten son to be born. And notice what, again, once again what it says in verse number 7. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. The Bible tells us so little about the birth of Christ. And this is probably why our imaginations just run wild with how everything looked, what animals were present there, what it looked like in the stable, and so on. Uh, jump into the pages of Scripture with me for a moment, though. Imagine what it must have been like to be there on scene, Joseph, Mary, there in probably a stable, mean innkeeper, kind of in the background saying, no room for you here, and we're there with them with this little manger and baby Jesus about ready to be born. Imagine what it must have been like. I imagine Joseph was probably incredibly nervous. His wife is about to give birth, and he probably has little idea on how to help her. Not to mention the fact that he knows this is no ordinary child that is about to be born. It's stressful enough when you're becoming a father for the first time. But Joseph had the added pressure 
that this child that's going to be born is the very son of God. I remember when Lily was born. Our first child. I'm dad for the first time. As we were preparing to leave the hospital after she's born, I was terrified. I was almost questioning the nurses, like, are you sure you're going to send this kid home with us? We barely know what we're doing. We just had her two days ago. Do you realize what you're doing sending us home with this baby? What makes you think we're capable enough to do this? Are you guys going to come home with us? I, it was all these things that are going through my mind. I'm terrified. I don't know how to take care of a kid. Thankfully, she's still alive today. It was nerve-wracking. I'm sure Joseph did everything he could to make sure Mary was comfortable in this entire process. But there's only so much he can do. It's not like he has a pillow that he can fluff or grab another pillow. There's no down comforter or a nice comfy mattress that he can lay her on. They're in the middle of probably a stable where animals are being kept. I can't even begin to imagine what went through Joseph's mind when Mary made that last push and baby Jesus is born. In that moment, so many prophecies were fulfilled. At that very moment, the God of the universe entered humanity. As John 1.14 tells us, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I'm sure Joseph took Jesus up in his arms, held him for the first time, overwhelmed with joy. Both Mary and Joseph probably could not even begin to comprehend right away the magnitude of what had just happened there that night. Despite the fact that an angel nine months prior had explained to them that this is indeed what was going to happen. It, would, it was all larger than life. For the life they were holding in their arms had become human flesh to bring everlasting life to all who would believe on him. There are some key details mentioned about Christ's birth here in Luke 2, 7 that I'd like you to notice. Notice again what it says. It says, And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Remaining consistent with the message of the virgin birth, the Bible tells us that this was Mary's firstborn son. Mary and Joseph would go on to have other children after this. But Mary and Joseph did not know each other intimately before this. This was her firstborn son. We're also told that Mary, it says, wrapped him in swaddling clothes. When a Jewish child was born, this child was typically washed in water, rubbed in salt, and then wrapped in swaddling clothes, which were usually long strips of cloth that were really designed to confine the arms and the legs to keep the baby warm. The Bible is showing us that there was no special treatment that baby Jesus received. Just what was normally expected from any newborn baby. Jesus looked like any other, other ordinary baby that was to be born. Joseph and Mary didn't treat him any different than any child was treated by its parents. Jesus wasn't born with a fancy robe wrapped around him. God simply directed Joseph and Mary to welcome him as they would any other beloved child. Then we're told that Mary, it says, laid him in a manger. This was most likely some sort of a, a little feeding trough that was used for animals. Joseph and Mary conveniently made Jesus' first bed a manger as if his birth wasn't humble enough. Think of the setting in which Christ was born. 
the Savior of the world, entered humanity in one of the smelliest and one of the filthiest and most uncomfortable places in the entire world. As strange as this seems, this fits perfectly with everything we know about Christ. In nearly every way, Christ humbled himself when he came to earth and was born among men. The most significant way Christ did this was by taking the place of every single sinner upon the cross. He came to earth and took upon himself the filth and the stench of sin in order to bring men salvation. Every little aspect of Christ's humble birth paints a beautiful picture for us today of what Jesus has done for us and how much he loves us. Better than all the gifts that you'll receive this Christmas. Know that God loves you and that he has personally made himself available to you through his son Jesus Christ who was born in Bethlehem nearly 2,000 years ago wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. He came to make God known to everyone. And more importantly, he came to offer salvation to all those who come to him in faith. As we celebrate our Christmas this year, may we realize just how much God has done in some of the minor details to identify with every one of his creation. He came as lowly as you can come the King of Kings was born in this manger. The King of Kings came to offer salvation to all who simply believe in him as their savior. May we rejoice tonight as we celebrate who he is to us and all that he's promised as we come to faith in him. Would you bow with me in prayer here this, this evening? Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, that we can look back on this account, Lord, and even though it's not as detailed as times as which we would like, Lord, what a joy it is to have these details nonetheless. Lord, we see enough to see that your word was perfectly fulfilled. Prophecies, Lord, that were told of, of old from hundreds of years prior, fulfilled to the exact letter. Thank you for being a very detailed and faithful God. But Lord, even in some of the areas in which you don't give us details, Lord, we're thankful that you are still true to your word and that your son, Jesus Christ, has come. Lord, yes, he came as a baby, but Lord, we, know, we all know that he came to live a life here on this earth that would ultimately take him to the cross where he would suffer on behalf of all men, Lord, so that all men through him might be saved. I'm thankful, Lord, that you have made salvation so easy and simple where all we have to do is believe on Jesus Christ for our salvation. And know that we are a sinner in need of the Savior, but that the Savior has come. Lord, and all we have to do is believe that he has done all that's necessary for us to live with everlasting life through him and through his finished work. May we rejoice tonight knowing that he is indeed our Savior. And Lord, if there be any here this evening that do not know you as their personal Lord and Savior, I pray, Lord, that you would bring conviction upon their hearts. Let them realize, Lord, that there is no better time than today for the day of salvation today to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's come to do for even them. We love you, Lord, and we just ask that you would be honored by the spirit of worship that we have here tonight, all for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.